Well, glad you're here this morning. Glad you're tuning in at home. We invested in some cameras all around the room. Most of them are hidden. Does that scare you a little bit, intimidate you? Most of the cameras are hidden. There's a primary camera right there. And they tell me, the production team tells me to look there when we give a shout out to our folks at home. So whether you're brave enough to be here today or brave enough to be at home, we're so glad that you are here. And one day things will be, well, there'll just be less restrictions. Aren't you looking forward to those days? Y'all, I hadn't touched my face in a long time. It's been months. It's been March 15th since I've touched my face. Uh, If you're a guest here, you don't know, I'm not a rule breaker. I'm a rule keeper. And so when I heard that I shouldn't touch my face, I haven't done that for a good five months now. I don't know about you guys, but um, not even close to being serious. Hey, I want to begin today with a, a by way of explanation. Most of the time we say at Fonder, when we're worshiping together, we're gathered, we say, turn in your Bibles to. And we did that most of the summer. We did a series called Lament, where each and every Sunday we said, turn to Psalm 13, turn to Psalm 55, turn to Psalm 42, turn to Psalm 88. Remember that one? That was a, that's a dark one. We would say, turn in your Bibles to. We did First Timothy six weeks. And for six weeks, we said, turn to First Timothy uh, a few weeks ago, we did a, a solo sermon called The Door, the Table, and the Garden, and we had you look at Acts 2, or Psalm 100, Acts 2, uh, and Jeremiah 29, 4-7. It was a turn to kind of Sunday, but this morning will be like last week, where we're not going to turn to per se, but I want to challenge you to take notes and to listen, and then look up, look at later. How about that? That'd be okay for you, so don't judge me today because it's not a turn to uh, in your Bible, but listen up if you would, and as there's not a primary text There's a meta-narrative, a larger story that we'll be looking at as we look at um, race and justice beyond the hashtags. How many of you are structure and order and control people? You like things to be very, very orderly. Uh, We have a a word for you, uh, type A. We refer to you as type A. You're wonderful souls where you like to know where things are going. You're wonderful people if you like structure, order, control. Type A people, by the way, thanks for doing our taxes. Type A people sit before a sermon they, and they ask a couple of initial questions before that sermon. They, they ask, where's this thing going? And will there be a significant transmission of ongoing content during the presentation? So I'm going to, I'm going to show you some love today. Structure, order, control people, type A's. Well, I'm going to give you my outline up front so you'll know where we're going. How about that? What a good gift. Here it is. Here's my outline. Photo of a woman with a dog in the park, Tower of a Babel, a promise to Abraham, Samaritans, Paul, Barnabas, Manian, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Irene, Lydia, a slave girl and a Roman jailer, birth of a nation, Ecclesiastes, James Brown and John chapter 5, a text I got from a guy named Kevin, third graders and you, yes you, Josiah and tears and torn robes and the day of judgment. How about that? We'll end on the day of judgment. Is that good enough for you? All right, let's, let's jump in today as we look at this. Here is a photo of a woman a lot of you will remember unless you were under a rock, sequestered somewhere. You uh, will probably recall this Memorial Day weekend in Central Park. Here is this woman. I think we got a photo of her. And her name was Amy Cooper. And Amy Cooper was walking her dog. Can we show her maybe up there? All right, we're frozen a little bit. Okay, well, anyway, Amy Cooper, a white woman, in a park with her dog on the phone. The dog is not on the leash. There are signs around the park that say that that all dogs should be on the leash. And a man who was black encouraged her, asked her to put her dog on the leash, as is the law. He would feel safer. He was there bird watching. And she ends up calling. Live, you know how this story ends. She ends up calling the police and she says, I am being threatened. She goes, number one, I'm being threatened by an African-American man. 
Later, she, her company would give her a leave of absence and she would apologize for the way that she wrongly acted in that situation. And that was one of many stories that we were confronted with in this year called 2020 that we had to watch and consider and ponder and in some ways debate and dissect and talk about. That story brought hurt to many people. At best, it was just uneasy. At worst, it drew ire and it brought up pain, particularly for our black Americans. Listen, here's this story. Here's this story, and here we are living in this culture. Here we are having to be confronted with this. What do we feel? What do we think? How do we process with people who think and feel differently about that story and so many others? How do we engage with that? How do we interact with that story? When God created, hear the meta-narrative, when God created in Genesis 1, he created us, male and female, in his image. And that means everybody. The scripture later defines us, you and I, as as by the way we're not animals we have a soul and we're the crowning achievement of his creation and he god created everybody in his image but in genesis 2 and in genesis 3 sin enters in i say this often as part of the gospel story that i present to people whether in a large group or one-on-one writing on a napkin with people but sin entered into the world and it enters in and it fractures and that's what sin has done ultimately racism it is a sin and it is a sin problem it enters in And it fractures people. It fractures us between our God. It reached a boiling point in Genesis chapter 11. If you're a note taker, write down Genesis 11 for it's the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, there is this phrase, Genesis 11 for, which I think can be the bane of modern day evangelicals and modern day church leaders, unfortunately. And they say in Genesis 11 for, let us make for ourselves a city a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might be made great ourselves. Let us make a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches toward the heavens so that we may make a name of greatness for ourselves. That's been a problem in the human heart ever since. Contrast Genesis 11.4 about making a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we can make a great name for ourselves. Contrast that eagle, that that ego, that angle, that agenda, that sin born in the human heart. Contrast that with God speaking to Abram, who would become Abraham, when he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations. God's plan from the beginning was never tribal. God's plan from the beginning was for you and I to think globally and to act locally and to realize how we are connected. And if you don't believe we're connected with the world in which we live, look at us today. Look at us today and think about this, that there are billions of people around the world in mask right now and we are connected because, as you know, incessantly, it is what? A regional pandemic, a local pandemic, a statewide, it is a global pandemic. And God comes to Abraham and says, I will bless you to be a blessing to all of the nations. And God, as always, has delivered on his promise. Do you know the trajectory of the promise that God gave to Abraham? Consider the influence of this man. And God blessed him to bless others, to bless all nations. And no one has been able to stop the work 
of God. The Egyptians have not been able to stop it. The Babylonians have not been able to stop it. The Romans with their cross of cruelty and execution were not able to stop it. Hitler could not stop it. Lenin could not stop it. Stalin could not stop it. Pol Pot could not stop it. No one has been able to stop it. And the plan gained momentum and gathered steam when a man of color in the Mediterranean world in the first century entered in. And Jesus, born in obscurity and poverty, this this man, this God-man entered into a world, I'm not sure that all are aware of this, he entered into a world of oppression, exploitation, and racial tension. And Jesus, central to his character, to his work, life, and teaching, he confronts it head on. Jesus never minced his words about oppression, exploitation, and racial tension. Like that's a sermon in and of itself for the American church, particularly the predominant white American church. Like right there, we could let that sit and go home right now. But Jesus confronts it head on. It's where we get to our outline of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were known by the people of Israel. Remember, a tribal, local world where there wasn't interaction outside of their own. And Jesus comes and shatters that. Paul would later say in Ephesians, man, he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus didn't come and change our differences. He loves that. Do you know that? Jesus loves our differences. If if there wasn't so much tension and oppression and exploitation, we could laugh and revel and savor our differences. We still can, but we could do that so much better. We're going to in heaven one day. But Jesus comes to break that dividing wall of hostility. But look at the way that he lived and had taught. Look at his interaction. Look at the way he confronted. And the people there said the Samaritans, if you read a little bit of the Bible, the best-selling book of all time, then you know that there are some stories about the Samaritans. But have you ever considered the common thread that's woven into it? The Samaritans were known by the Israelite people, particularly the religious folks, they were known as being morally unclean and spiritually unfaithful. Even the ones who weren't, the half-bred Samaritans, they were considered to be that because they would just lob grenades. They would pass judgment based on what they saw, what they saw on the local news. That was their thing. And in Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells a story. If you're a note taker, follow this thread, write Luke 17 down. And Jesus tells this story of 10 men being healed by lepers. And he, when he heals them, he tells them there's a little bit that we won't get into. There's a lot to it, but we won't get into this. But it's something good to study later. Luke 17, Jesus heals 10 who have leprosy, the scourge of the day, the outcast, those who are marginalized and forgotten. He heals 10 of them, and he says, go show yourself to the priest, plural, not singular, not just the Israelite priest, but go show yourself to the, to the priest, even the unorthodox priest. And go show yourself to the priest. And Jesus in his story says that only one comes back to give him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, people believe it's the most famous story ever told. You could go find a cranky, angry atheist, not that all of them are, and you could... Ask them the story of the Good Samaritan and they could tell you something about this story. And Jesus tells a story of a man who was robbed, he was beaten, he was stripped down and left lying naked on the side of the road. And a few people walk past him. A priest walks past him and doesn't mend 
A Levite walks past and does nothing to show compassion or care. And then a third man walks by and he picks him up and takes care of him and even goes, fulfills one of Jesus' other teachings in that he goes the extra mile. By the way, our world is crying for people not who do the minimum, but who go the extra mile. And that's the story. And the person in that story, the hero in the story, was not the priest or the Levi. It was the it was the spiritually unfaithful. It was the morally unclean. It was the Samaritan. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are together, and there's a town that wasn't that hospitable to him, to them. And the disciples, man, these guys were so stubborn. They had so much to grow and learn in. And they asked Jesus, because of the lack of hospitality, they said, hey, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Isn't that great? You want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. They, they needed a lot of spiritual growth, didn't they? And Jesus says no, and he rebukes not the disciple. I mean, he rebukes not the Samaritans. He rebukes the disciples. In John chapter 4, it's recorded, the longest recorded conversation Jesus ever had with anybody was with a woman at the well, scandalous for that day, and that woman was a Samaritan woman. John 4, 4, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. You got to know a little bit of sociology and geography and its cultural historical context, but it says that Jesus, he must go through Samaria. But you see all his people and all his tribe, all the people that were spiritually faithful and morally clean, you know, those people, they would bypass Samaria, but Jesus went through it. In fact, John Chapter 8 says this, 848, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's as if Jesus, amidst the backdrop of God's love for everyone, was willing to stand and say, Samaritan lives matter, no matter the cost or the misunderstanding. Are you with me? I'm not stretching this one. He was so aligned with the people that were marginalized that it created controversy. And they began to wonder what he meant. They began to wonder about his political angle or his agenda, but he stood with them. And then this was the preposterous accusation. He was willing to stand with them. And that's what we find in Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, God says, wait, wait for my power. That's good advice, isn't it? You wait, you quit your striving and you wait where I tell you with a humble posture and you wait to receive my power and the power of the Spirit came and it fell upon them and there's misunderstanding in church circles and the people debate this theologically and all what happened, but the scripture is pretty clear. I'm, I'm not sure why we get wacky about it, but the scripture is pretty clear that these people are speaking in a bunch of different languages as we will according to Revelation 7-9 at the throne. And these languages were being spoken by these simple Galileans. And people took notice. Acts 2.13, are they been drinking? It's only the ninth hour. Are these guys drunk? But something happened and these languages were being spoken. In Acts, we see as it unfolds, we began to see more and more. All the way back after the Tower of Babel, Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham about being a blessing. Jesus shows up and changes the scorecard for the entire world. And we see it unfold in the power of his spirit. We see that dividing wall of hostility. People still different. Be who you are. Celebrate your culture. But there is a unity 
in our diversity. And that's what we see. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. Here's Peter working with a man named Cornelius. He's up on a roof and God shows him something. So Peter opened his mouth. By the way, Peter was always opening his mouth. Anybody just always opening your mouth? That's Peter. He opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. All he had known is partiality. In the original Greek language of the New Testament, it's better rendered. So Peter then realized. Peter, for the first time, understood. By the way, if we're going to be people who learn about race and justice that flows from the heart of the gospel, we will need Acts 10, 34 moments. We will need moments where we say, oh, now I realize. I have now learned something that I previously didn't know. I thought this was true, and now this is true. Are you willing, am I willing to learn and realize some, not everything we think is right is right? And we need, we need some new learning. And you go to Acts chapter 13, where they were first called Christians. They were called the way in Acts 9. This is the way because they followed the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection and the life. They were known as the way. And then in Acts 13, they were called Christians. And the scripture tells us that the leaders there, it names five of the leaders of the church at Antioch in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas and Mania. And then there's Simeon, also called Niger, which means dark or black skin. He was African. And then uh, another leader that's mentioned from the Mediterranean world. Um, and these leaders, it's interesting, besides Paul and Barnabas, none of the other leaders are really mentioned again in the Bible. Which makes you wonder, why were they mentioned in Acts 13? Why were they mentioned then? It's as if God wants to demonstrate to us the power of diversity. And how the church ought to do all that it can, including every local body, to follow Jesus in breaking down that wall of hostility, to celebrate our differences in unity. But listen, this church was led by people. If you do the breakdown of that, it was led by people. These five leaders, Paul and Barnabas, they were, they were, they were ethnic Jews in a Greek culture. You had leaders that were, that represented Africa and the Mediterranean world that represented Asia, Asia being different at the time, Asia Minor different than what we would know as the continent of Asia. But look at the incredible diversity on this team and you get to Acts 16 and you see there are three converts when the gospel spread and multiplied it amplified and people took notice Acts tells us that they turned the world upside down wouldn't it be cool if we became a more compelling people wouldn't it be better if we were known for what we were for and not what we were against wouldn't it be cool if we just rejected some of the peripheral stuff and focused on what mattered? Wouldn't it be cool if we realized the gospel brings us together with God and other people? We'll close on this, but 2 Corinthians 5, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And that's not just you getting right with God. You need to. That's not just you getting right with God. That's you getting right with other people. That's you getting right with other people who aren't like you. Three converts in Acts 16. So cool. Lydia, she was a wealthy, uh, she was a wealthy woman. Lydia and a Roman jailer and a slave girl. And here's what's significant. The Jewish men, the uppity guys, the crust, the country club guys, they had a prayer and it was a common prayer in the first century. Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. 
they knew they had power and privilege and they didn't want to upset the apple cart. And you know what? Has anything changed? The gospel should change that. And so the three converts in the midst of men who had a prayer, Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. If you look at Lydia, she's a woman. There's a slave girl, right? There's a Roman jailer. He's a Gentile. Listen to me. Wow. It's as if Jesus' promise is coming true and the first century church got it. Can we ourselves get it? Which brings us in the point of our outline to the birth of a nation. I would love for you to dig into this a little bit later. Here's a rendering of this film. It was a film in the 1920s, almost 100 years old. It was a black and white film. It was a silent movie. All the movies were silent when this was produced. And this movie depicts, it would be um, enormously difficult for us to watch this today, enormously difficult. But this film depicts white people as pure and innocent and Christian and depicts black people as rapists and animals and less than human. And it exposes some things that we can learn today about systems and structures, institutions and ideologies. Birth of a nation. To my black brothers and sisters, I've said this to a few in a small group recently. I think of Ecclesiastes and I give a prayer and a charge. I've actually hurt the feelings of a friend of mine, a black friend, when the events were unfolding this summer and I asked him to be patient and he said, I don't want to be patient. I'm tired of being patient. You know what I found? If you're going to work toward reconciliation with people of color, you're going to say things that hurt them. You are going to say wrong things and it's going to be a part of it. But let's break the ice and keep breaking the ice and learn from our mistakes. And it took about 10 minutes for my brother to forgive me and to talk to me and to teach me. And it was a good, healthy thing. And that's going to be part of it. Are you willing, am I willing to be able to do that? Ecclesiastes gives us 28 things in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. It says it's a time for. It's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There is a time to build and a time to tear down. There's a time to to laugh and a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to, to gather and a time to scatter. There is a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to love and a time to hate, a time to speak up and a time to be silenced, a time for peace and a time for war. There is a time. And I pray for our black brothers and sisters. I pray for people of color to not give up. And despite what we see with characters in the media, despite what we choose to believe many times from a distance. Time and time again, our black brothers and sisters have showed amazing resiliency and patience. As the film depicts birth of a nation, our country was slanted against so many people. And people of color have not had the advantages that I have had. People of color were owned. They were bought and brought over. They were subjugated and mistreated. 
and the amazing level of character and patience that our black brothers and sisters have shown in American history. Listen, to even when slavery ended, there wasn't some universal therapy session. When It's amazing the stories of heroism, like of biblical proportions of former slaves who were set free and who built churches and businesses, who started families and did all they could to see those neighborhoods burned and churches bombed and to be set back time and time again. And there are so many people, so many black brothers and sisters in Christ who have built and rebuilt, who have a loving, patient uh, attitude toward America, a grace-filled attitude, who have a, a spirit of reconciliation that we need to appreciate. Oh, there is a time to give up, but I do pray, I do pray that our black brothers and sisters do not give up on us. Which gets us to a text I got from a guy named Kevin. Kevin is a black friend I grew up with. He texts me. We were having a pretty significant exchange a couple of months ago. He asked this question that has stuck with me. What will it take for a greater segment of the church, a greater segment of my white brothers and sisters to believe that justice is not some liberal outside the gospel, outside the Bible idea? And notice the language, like just a greater segment. He's not asking for euphoria. He's not asking for utopia or perfection. He's asking for a greater segment of us to understand. You know, we can do that. Do you know that you can, uh, you and I, we can be a part of that greater segment? You and I can be a part of a greater segment to see that this is a, this is central to the gospel. Central to the gospel of what we can do and what we can learn. And hear me now. James 1.19 says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How many of you in the house, how many of you at home struggle with that sometimes? Can I see your hands? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How, how many of you mess that up a little bit? How many of you mess that up a whole lot? How many of you are sitting next to someone and you want to raise their hand because they're not? Just grab their hand and raise their hand for them, okay? This is a place of judgment, okay? Listen, hear me now. We, I know so many, I know so many white Christians, white church people. It's like we've got a PhD in statistics, but a third grade education in empathy. Oh, well, you're black on black crime. Oh, well, Chicago. Blah, blah, blah. We, like, we, know, we, we know some statistics and we cherry pick those statistics. And in the middle of that, we're lacking empathy and we're, in many ways, violating the truth, the real truth. And until you and I are, are willing to adhere to the half-brother of Jesus in James 1.19, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If you're white and you're agitated when you watch the news, if you're white and you're apathetic, if you're white and you get defensive, that could be pointing to something in you, a work that God wants to do. And he's doing it in me. And look, I pray God moves me to have a PhD in empathy for us to listen and for us to learn. What could be done? What could we do? A few pastors and I got together a few weeks ago. We're supposed to have another get-together next week. And the conversation was brought up of looking at statistics and stories 
other places and other cities and thinking about a reality as black and white and brown work together, thinking about this reality. And Fondren Church is, man, we've gotten our feet wet. Our, our, our toes are in the swimming pool. But the reality is that black and brown public education systems in under-resourced areas, that if a child, by the way, created in the image of God, if a child gets to the third grade and is not on level with reading and math, they are likely, very likely to be incarcerated at some point, if not for their lives. But if a third grade child is at his or her level in reading and math at third grade, that child is likely to go to college. So the meeting we had is what if, now look, Fondren Church, we we can only make, only God knows the impact. But what if churches came together? That was the conversation. That'll be the conversation next week. What if churches got together and adopted schools and adopted kids and we all took one? Look, that's just getting our feet wet. But what impact could we have? We could be dismantling a poor system and structure, an institution ideology that needs reconciliation, that needs help. And that could be us. That could be a step for us we come to the point in the outline of Josiah and tears and torn robes 2 Kings 22 not a lot of context love for you to look at it later 2 Kings twenty two nineteen. by the way Josiah was a king you know when he became king he was he was eight years old eight years old I know some of you have a child that's an honor student you've got a bumper sticker on your car but your child wasn't a king at eight years old there's there's more to the story but anyway Josiah because your heart was penitent all right this is the English standard version Um, some English translations render this uh, your heart was responsive Because your heart was penitent or responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. What I'm sensing as I talk to other people outside of my tribe and my normal traffic patterns of my own little life is that we need, we're going to need to go back a little bit before we go forward. We're going to need to learn a lot more than we currently know. We're going to need to be, we're going to need to be responsive and we're going to need to be humble. And look, I'm not throwing religion at anybody right now. I'm just telling you, experts tell you, you will learn when you're most teachable and you will not be teachable unless you're responsive and humble. Are you willing to be on this very important subject of faith and culture, of race and justice and moving beyond the hashtags? Are you willing? Here is a young leader who was repentant, who was humble, which takes me to the point, let's back up a little bit, of James Brown the godfather of soul in John chapter 5. Here's a young James Brown. This was about the age he penned the lyrics. I don't want nothing from nobody, just somebody to open the door and then I'll go get it. The godfather of soul. He's not looking for ongoing help. He's not asking for a welfare state. He's asking for somebody to open the door to give him a chance, which reminds me of John chapter 5 and the unnamed invalid 
who sat for 38 years. Anybody having trouble being patient with something right now? For 38 years, this unnamed invalid in John chapter 5 sat there and he could not move. And the story goes like this in John 5, that the angel came from heaven and stirred the water at the pool of Bethesda, stirred the water, and one by one, people who had needs would go to the water. And they experienced healing and they experienced holiness and this and wholeness and this this unnamed invalid who had waited for 38 years he watched but he could not go and he had this hope that had been deferred for 38 years and there he is waiting and hoping that someone who had mobility would take him to the waters that's all he needed was to I ain't asking nothing from nobody just open the door and then I'll go get it Wasn't asking for the welfare state. Wasn't asking for ongoing help. Somebody with mobility, somebody with power, somebody with privilege, somebody that could take him there to free him up to live life to the fullest. That's the call. That's the part that we can play if we are willing. That's the change that we could bring. Which gets us, I promised, we would close on Judgment Day. Isn't that what y'all want to close with? Some judgment? The day of judgment? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few passages here. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 uh, is the first one. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Y'all ready for that day? 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Here's how that's best rendered. From from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's the NIV and the New Living Translation. That's how we speak more. We don't say flesh a lot. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh from a worldly point of view, we regard him thus no longer. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The final judgment seat of Christ talks about our relationship with others and how we treated others and how did we look on other people and did we build bridges. My wife is meeting with a few women lunch on Tuesdays right up in the breezeway room to talk about being a better bridge builder. What role, what part can you play? I wonder as Lauren and our team comes to lead us in a closing song and I wonder if you would for a moment reflect what level of prejudice do you harbor in your heart? What animosity or misunderstanding are you holding on to? To what extent does the media inform you? Let me ask that again. To what extent does the media inform you? Are you willing to have an Acts 10.34 moment where you would let God interrupt you to give you an aha moment that through learning and through knowledge 
to say, I, I, I didn't realize this. I did not realize this. And that won't come with your arms folded. That won't come with your brow furrowed. That won't come with you being full of pride. That won't come with being sanctimonious. That won't come by thinking you're better than somebody else. What level of responsiveness could God give us? In what ways can we move into our future as people together? Are you willing to put money to this? Are you willing to put time? Are you willing to get outside of yourself? Are you willing to allow God to give you some aha moments of learning? God help us. A PhD in statistics, but a third degree education in empathy. Let us learn the brakes on speaking to open our ears to listen and be slow to move toward emotions that boil up and over would you stand and would you pray with me would you be willing to be one that would become part of a larger segment say that justice and social justice it's not a political thing it certainly can be it deteriorates many times when it is but it is not centrally a political thing it is a biblical thing it is a gospel thing it will be reflected on the final judgment day to what extent can we be ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation Father, move us. This isn't a sermon. This isn't one conversation. This is so many along a continuum. Lord, that I pray would be forward, forward moving. And thank you as we have celebrated with folks here that Revelation 7, 9 tells us that there's a throne and every tribe and tongue and nation will sing your praise. So different than us beating our chest and wanting to build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches heaven to make our name great. And Lord, what is good for us is ultimately your glory. God, unite us. Thank you for the picture that we have in the church and what we have demonstrated in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for even older hearts, even hearts that have been robbed in culture and tripped up with erroneous ideas would be more open and responsive to ministries of reconciliation to seeking to change structures and systems institutions and ideologies because sin resides there too in our hearts and in those as well Jesus, we pray. Lord, bless us now as we sing praises to you.